Welcome to the I Love Music Podcast. My name is Jen Fedor. I started the I Love Music Podcast to inspire people who love music, encourage people who work within the industry, and to hear each person's unique story. Hey everyone, it's been a second since I've released a new podcast episode. I love multiple projects happening at once, but it has been so busy, but at the same time, very fulfilling. On my personal project front, I'm excited to announce I will be releasing new music for you this year. On top of the documentary short, The Dancing Man of LA, that I co-directed and is coming to public broadcasting very, very soon. So many good things are happening, and I am so pumped. For this episode, I got to interview Grammy-nominated composer and orchestrator Jeremy Levy. He received his nomination this year for the track Uranus the Magician off of his album The Planets Reimagined. This was such a fun conversation talking about his nomination, orchestrating the Queen's Gambit, to working on Frozen 2, Star Wars, to his touring days, working with the Brian Setzer Orchestra. He's been a part of so many awesome and cool things. Be sure to check out The Planets Reimagined. It's so inspiring. For all of Jeremy's updates, visit jlevymusic.com. Tune in to the Grammys on March 14th on CBS. Let's get into Jeremy's interview. Jeremy, congrats on your first Grammy nomination for Uranus the Magician. Thank you so much. I know things are like just a little bit crazy right now with like COVID and everything. So the Grammys got rescheduled for March 14th. Yeah. Were you surprised? What was your reaction when you found that out? I was surprised and not surprised, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was originally... As far as I know, it was going to be a mostly virtual ceremony. I think they were planning on having some public performances as well. That they would, or not public, but they would tape them for video. To yeah. Air. Um, so I'm, I'm imagining that was probably the bigger issue, that they weren't able to do that because of how bad everything is right now in Los Angeles. So it's it's not surprising that they had to put it back a little bit. Yeah, totally. I am i don't know if I will still be, but I was tentatively going to be working then this year. So I was super surprised as well. <laughs> How did you decide to do your own like rendition of uh, the planets? Yeah, that is um, a long story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the short version of it, and then I'll probably kind of expound a bit as okay. uh, as I'm talking here. But <laughs> essentially, the idea came about. Um, I was working on doing some additional music on the video game Star Wars Battlefront. Um, okay. My friend, my friend Gordy Hobb, who's this amazing composer, um, he was uh, he was a little swamped at the end of the project and asked me and a couple other guys and a few of his other friends, composer friends, to help out and write some music at the end. So I came in to do that. I, I did like I think like just like maybe like five minutes of additional music for it. Oh my um, gosh, that's me... awesome! Star Wars, I love it. Yeah, it was, it was very <laughs> yeah, it was very cool to get to do that and then also have the music recorded by the London Symphony. So that's that in and of itself was like a little small dream come true you know by getting the uh even the honor to write some music for that franchise <laughs> you know there's a bit of responsibility with that so i got had to go back and study all the original john williams scores um so i did that and then i also went back and i studied uh the planets by gustav pulse which is was highly influential to john williams when he's writing star wars there's you know a big scene at the end of the first star wars movie where the where the um the death star blows up and it's this you know, literally almost like note by note um, yeah. rendition from the end of Mars. It's this, you know, very famous little music trivia bit, but uh, it's, anyway, so that's sort of where this came from. I went back and I listened to The Plants again, and uh, this is a piece of music that I've been listening to, you know, since I was in high school. Right. Um, and, you know, I would go back and study it every couple of years and find something new in it. Um, so anyway, so I went back 
gave a good listen and uh, studying a few of the movements of the planets. Um, and then later that summer, um, the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra was doing a performance of it. So I went and saw that with another composer friend of mine. And I was just sort of, uh, I don't want to say overwhelmed by the music, but it was just very much like it got to the end of Jupiter, which has this big fanfare sort of thing. And it was just like this culmination of this is like where film music sort of came from, you know? Yeah, like, totally. Like, this is like such an influential piece of music for everything that I that I do now and that so many other people have done. And then on top of that, you know, it was written at the beginning of the 20th century, right? It's like all the harmony was like sort of transitioning from like classical harmony to like romantic to jazz. There was all these confluences of, of, of harmony and style. And like, it just, it really just hit me that like, there is all this music that can be translated over into jazz and you can do it in a way that wouldn't be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, um, totally so, so yeah, makes sense. I, I, I just had this idea that like, you know, I should, this is something I think I need to try. And of course I have a big band here in Los Angeles um, with the saxophonist Alex Budman. Um, we had done a record in 2012 and I had kind of been looking to do a follow-up record. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it um, with that band or if I wanted to do it as a solo project. Um, but I came up with this idea and I just really thought this might be something that people will be, you know, possibly really interested in just because it's got, obviously there's a source material that is, sort of beloved. Um, and on top of the fact, it also went on public domain, which made it much easier to deal with. So I didn't have to worry about legal issues. So I was oh, able that's to- that's great. Yeah. That's really, really good. Yeah, so it, it had just gone out, gone into public domain, like I think like two years before then. Okay. Um, so it was, it was pretty fresh. No one that I knew of had tackled it yet in this format. I, I kind of did a little bit of research when I got the idea to make sure that like, you know, I wasn't the only person that came up with this idea. Right. And like, there was like a couple of smaller things where it was like a jazz, trio version of that they had done like sort of like a version of it but it was sort of a different style very different from what i was planning on doing so i kind of got the green light in my head to start and uh yeah i just i wrote the first movement um i did mars um okay. i kind of came up with the idea of how i wanted to handle that and then i brought it into my band with alex and we read it down i was like okay this is this is gonna work you know <laughs> That's so great. Oh my gosh, yeah, I and love then, it. Then I spent the next nine months in between working on other projects, just whenever I had some free time, I would uh, just really focus on trying to arrange the entire the entire, uh, the entire suite. Um, and then when I got to the end of it, I just kind of realized like this is, uh, I think this is going to be a personal project and I kind of had to put it out under my own name just because it was something that was, I think, very personal to me, you know? Mm -hmm. so, Definitely. Uh, yeah, when I got to the end of this, we ended up labeling the project the Jeremy Levy Jazz Orchestra. Um, and then Alex was involved. He co-produced the record with me, but this is just something I felt yeah. like I had to put out under my own name. That's awesome. And you had a Kickstarter campaign to like help complete it and everything. Yeah. Um, so let's hear. So it was 2018. I did the writing. Um, it was okay. About or, over about eight or nine months. Then in 2019, um, let's hear. I'm trying to remember though. It's been about three years now since this whole yeah. thing started. Um, but it was yeah. So 2019, um, I. I planned a live recording of it um, with my alma mater in the University of Miami. Okay. Um, so I, I flew out to Miami. Um, I did like a week of master classes with the college band down there. And then we did a concert sort of premiering it, which gave me a great opportunity to really kind of focus in on the live aspect of it and really just work on the music and That's just kind awesome. of really, you know, just kind of wood shop it for a little bit, which I hadn't had a good chance to do because, you know, you rehearse it and you only have like an hour at a time, you know, mm -hmm. and you work on little bits of it, but you don't get to do the whole thing as an entire piece of music. Right. So I had that week, that week down there um, with John Diversa. It was his, it's his college band. Um, he's a great friend of mine. He's also at her originally from Los Angeles. Then he moved to Miami and took over the music program down there. He's also a, a Grammy nominated or sorry, Grammy winning um, jazz composer who won 
I think it was either last year or the year before he won like two or three Grammys. Amazing guy. Um, but anyway, I'm very thankful he he allowed me to use his band to sort of premiere the piece and workshop it. Uh, so I did that. And then after that, then I started a Kickstarter campaign to uh, to fundraise to do the actual studio recording. And uh, that was in and of itself a bit of a, a bit of a journey trying to figure out how to do that because I'd never done one of these crowdsourced fundraising know. projects before. You know, I'd, it's I'd really intense. It is. It's, it is. It's so um, intense. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And uh, it was, it's tricky because, you know, it's essentially you're, you start the whole thing up and like, you're essentially creating a brand new website, you know, just for this project. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, you're sort of structuring what you can give to the people. Obviously, you know, you're going to be producing this record, which is what people are giving money towards, but you also want to provide something for people along for the experience. Yeah. Um, so I offered like all sorts of things like access to rough mixes um, I offered up um, at one tier, for instance, like if you're already in Los Angeles, you can come out and listen to the band, rehearse the music so you can meet everybody. So I tried to offer things like that, um, sort of yeah. like personal experiences. Um, I also offered um, like a private like composition lesson. There's um, a guy came up from, I think, San Diego, came up to my house. We did the little studio session. He was hanging out for the afternoon and talked about everything. And it's a lot of fun. So I did those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and then I, I will say the person that really helped me kind of figure out how to do this was Austin Winery, the composer. He's okay. a, a friend of mine out here and he really kind of helped me narrow it down sort of like what you can do to make sure that like you're providing a good experience uh, for the people, you know, that are, you know, giving money for this project. And then also on my end to make sure that like everything that I'm offering up, these are all like deliverables that I can actually deliver on. You know, you're not giving these like empty promises of like, you're going to get right. this merchandise and memorabilia, you know, all these things you're going to spend like a lot of time and money to create that, you know, it's probably not the best yeah. use of your own resources. So I try to keep everything manageable that I could deliver pretty easily. That's great. So that, that's kind of how that went. And then at the end of the project, I raised about half of the recording budget. Um, so it paid for um, the big recording studio when we did the entire band, and then it paid for all the player contracts. So I was able to I was able to pay everybody on union contract, which is great for everybody. So I got to do you know my, my healthcare contributions and pension Good. plan, that whole thing. So it was everything was kind of done by the book and uh it's I'm, I'm very thankful we i could do this it was, it was very helpful to do the kickstarter thing i would definitely recommend it if you have something that you think people are going to be interested in yeah no i mean i yeah i know um kickstarters are great for you know bands and you know different ways for different projects so that's that's awesome that that came together and i know because sometimes I know I've been a part of like Kickstarter campaigns where the deliverable I didn't get for like two years. So yeah. I think that's like super, like it's super important. Is this like something I can actually do and yeah. do I have time to get it to the people? So yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing too, because like, uh, as far as like Kickstarter, like I don't think there's really much action that'd be taken if like, if a person donates money, and then you, know, you meet your goals. So the money is given to the person doing the fundraising and then if they yeah. don't deliver, there's not really much the other person can do about it. <laughs> it's kind of a weird little system. It's, it's really kind of like an honor system. It, it totally um, is. Yeah, so I, I try to be very clear as far as like, you know, like I guess set up essentially like a budget as far as where the money is going towards, you know, <laughs> so it's very clear what's being paid for. You know, this isn't just like going to buy myself like a new car or something shiny for, sure. for my wife, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's, yeah. So I, I was just, I was very clear, very upfront. This is the money going towards the player contracts, booking the studio, then mixing, mastering, just, you know, all the actual, the hard costs of producing a record. So, so, so you went to school in Miami then for music? Yes. Yeah. I did my master's in jazz composition down there. 
That's cool. What type of music like influenced you growing up? Growing up, um, like the early stuff, like I feel like my, my parents played me like mostly the Beach Boys. Yeah. <laughs> like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Um, I feel like those were probably like, the earliest things I remember. And then like in high school, I got into like the kind of typical stuff of like at the time what it was like Green Day, Alanis Morissette, all the kind of usual stuff. Um, and then like I remember like probably like, in middle school, like, I really got into like hair metal for a little bit, like all those like Motley Crue and those types of bands. Um, and then once I started playing, I started playing piano when I was very little, like five years old. And then I okay. started playing trombone in middle school. And then I started getting into jazz around then. So like from like eighth, ninth grade, I really got into jazz. And then I feel like everything else kind of went away. And then I really just dived deep into, uh, into jazz and like, especially like, you know, trombone focused jazz. Cause I played trombone. So that was, okay. I was, I was kind of off on my own little world there for a little bit, which I, I think is pretty common for a lot of people to kind of go into a very specific genre of music. You know, there's a, a lot of sort of building of trying to figure out where does this music come from and <clears throat> who are the, uh, the influences for players. And there's just, you know, you can go so deep into studying, you know, the history of like jazz trombone or jazz itself. Yeah. Um, did you have any mentors along the way that like kind of helped you like direct like where you want to, what you wanted to do within the jazz jazz music world or yeah um so I'll, I'll i'll name a couple so the first big influence on me was my high school band director craig buck who was also okay. a trombonist so he was really i think the first person that's kind of like opened my eyes and ears to sort of like what the trombone and especially a jazz trombone could be um i remember like i would go to his house and like he would play recordings for me you know stuff that like you know again this is you know, this is the 90s, so there's no Spotify, yeah. there's no Apple Music, there's no streaming. Yeah. You actually had to buy things. You had to have collections. You had to, like, really go searching for stuff. Yeah. So you got these, like, obscure jazz recordings that, you know, not everybody would have. So he really opened my ears to a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't have ever found or experienced if I didn't have somebody kind of guiding me along the way. Um, so he was very important, just really kind of just opening my opening my ears to this stuff. And then after that, um, Jim Widener, um, who hosted the summer music camps in Springfield, Missouri, um, or actually he did camps kind of all over, um, but the okay. one I went to was in Springfield, Missouri. Um, he, I think he just retired from University of Missouri, University of Missouri, St. Louis. He was the head of the jazz program there. Um, but he would do these camps and he would have uh, players and teachers come out from Los Angeles and the East Coast. And this is just another thing where you're really, you're being kind of opened up to the sort of, greater exposure of the world of music, you know? Just, yeah. You know, I'm from, I was from Hannibal, Missouri, you know, this little little town of 20,000 people. And, you know, you only, you have kind of a smaller world until you're experienced yeah. to, uh, you know, until you're open up to what else is out there. So I got to meet a lot of people from the West Coast, some people that I work with now, you know, like 20, 20 30 years later, which is interesting in itself that uh, we're still alive, you're doing great stuff. Um, so it's, awesome. it's really cool that I've gotten to, you know, work with some of these people as a player now, or even as an arranger. Yeah. Um, so th those are the early influences. Um, and then I guess the other two, um, so I did my undergraduate at university, university of Missouri in Kansas city. Okay. And, uh, the head of the jazz program there was a saxophonist, Bobby Watson. And, uh, I think he was really the first person that really encouraged me to pursue composing and arranging. So he was pretty influential in that aspect. I think he was probably one of the few guys that just kind of saw that like, like I was, I was a good trombone player and that's originally what I wanted to do. Um, but he's, I think he knew better than like, you need to have a broader experience than just playing an instrument yeah. if you really want to have a career. Um, so I think he, he showed me a lot of what I can do and really uh, pushed me to get past kind of my fears of what I thought I could do. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure.
Yeah. So, like, what what was, like, one of the first pay, like, I really want to focus on this or... I don't know. Were, were there any hurdles or? I mean, I feel like the hurdles are more sort of internal for the most part. I, I feel like I've been yeah. pretty fortunate in getting a lot of good breaks as far as career goes. Career goes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the hard part is to just kind of just telling yourself that you can do this. You know, you're staring at a, a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. Yes. And, it, and you're like, okay, now create some music. That's obviously the hard part for everybody so it's always been getting past those sort of internal barriers i think that's been the hardest Um, oh yeah i mean i i I completely agree i started songwriting a couple years ago and i was more on the management business side for many many years and it was it was a complete like mental thing where like i just had to get over i was like okay i have these song ideas like i'm i'm gonna actually try to do this so I think that yeah. barrier is like sometimes, you know, that <laughs> it's more of the mental aspect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like the most important thing I've learned about writing music is that it's okay to throw something out, you know, <laughs> like yeah. not everything you write is precious. Like sometimes, you know, you might have spent like three hours working on something and you're like, you know, this isn't really working. And like, you know, it's okay. Just hit delete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just start over. Do it yeah. again. And like once once you're okay with that and then it just makes it much easier just knowing that like not everything is this this precious little nugget of material, you know. <laughs> like, totally. Like it's okay. Yeah. Um, how do you approach composing? Um, so it's it really depends on um the medium and you know what it's for. So yeah. Like if you're writing for picture, um so the, the most recent example, um I, I don't actually do a ton of writing for picture. I, I mostly work for other composers doing orchestrations, but uh okay. I did this project for Magic the Gathering. I think it was last year now. This is I'm in a bit of a, a time warp with COVID right now, not knowing what Oh, day I feel it is. the same way. I've I've this year where I've been like, Yeah, I'm working on this like next year and people are like, Oh, you do you mean this year, twenty twenty one? And I'm like, Oh yeah, it's not twenty twenty anymore. I I have to keep like reminding myself that. Yeah. So I think this match one might have been two years ago now. Um, okay. but I did this project for Match at the Gathering. It was a trailer for one of the new uh, sets of playing cards, and it was this whole—it was this four-minute trailer animated project with like this like gingerbread man and uh, gingerbread man, gingerbread girl, and it's this like romantic love story, but it's taking place in this like medieval times with like this like big ogre that yeah. comes in. And, like I think I've seen it. I've I, yeah, I've, I, yeah, I think was, I've seen it. It ended this. up being really cool, but uh, it was such an interesting project because like so I got hired to do that uh, through Gordy Hobb again through he was the composer I talked about and I worked with him on the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, uh, and that he hired me because I do a lot of arrangements working with pop songs like for pops orchestras and doing that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the project was they wanted to take uh, the Frankie Valley song, um, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, and they wanted to adapt it to kind of work with the theme of um, do it to picture with uh, for this trailer. So Gordy called me to come in and help. And it's interesting because like at first uh, I thought it was just going to be just adapting the song, right? So like a, you know, like a pop orchestra version of it. And yeah. then like as the project went along, it kept shifting. And like all of a sudden now it's like, okay, now I'm just doing a film score for this where like the song would come in and out and it was very adaptable. It was uh, it was very, it was a good experience for me because I don't do, I hadn't done a lot of that. So I, I got to work with, you know, the director for that and with Gordy and we're really kind of hammering out like the emotions of the scene. And yeah. What, you know, they, they had like, we had like a whole script because 
working with animation, you see like, you know, the animatic of it before the final thing. So you're trying mm -hmm. to piece together what's actually happening. So they tell us, and then, you know, you come up with like a first draft of what you think is going to work. And then, you know, you come back and make notes and go, oh, okay, I don't think we, I got this quite right. And it's one bit, we really need to kind of maybe drop out of the song. And now we're going to go into more, like we need to score the emotion of the scene or it becomes sort of like a battle scene. Now we need to figure out, okay, but we need to get back into the song, but now it needs to be this like very emotional version of it where it's maybe just the lyrics and sort of like a, a creepy orchestra underneath. So there's yeah. other aspects where so much of it was dictated by, you know, the story and the script. Yeah. Um, so when you're doing that, and this is again, something where you can't be afraid to just throw out what you're working on. You know, we went through probably four or five versions and, you know, by the time we got to the end, it was so much better than where we had started just because it's a collaborative process. Oh, that's awesome. That's So that that's the one side of it. And then um, with some of the other stuff I do, like when I'm doing um, like an arrangement or something, like if I work with, I've been working with the Metropole Orchestra, which is this pop orchestra out of the yeah. Netherlands. And they do all these like crossover concerts and jazz stuff. They did, uh, they did a record like with Jacob Collier a couple of years ago. Um, although that was before I started working with them. But just as an example of the sort of stuff they do, you know, they were with all these really cool artists. Um, but when you're working with that, you know, they'll give you sort of an idea of, you know, this arrangement needs to be for a certain thing or a certain concept. So you kind of have in your head an idea of like, what is this, what is this song for, you know? So you yeah. already have some sort of thematic ideas. So you really kind of approach it that way. And it it's really quite helpful sort of knowing or understanding like what is the purpose of what you're writing, you know, because if you just have a blank piece of paper and you don't yeah. really have a purpose to write something, then it's just, you can write anything and yes. it might be good, but doesn't mean anything, you know? Totally, totally. But it, it's it's very, I think, important for me when you're writing music that it, it really needs to mean something and have some sort of a purpose outside of just being music. Definitely, I agree. So like for orchestration for like the Queen's Gambit and Frozen 2, like, what kind of what what is that process like for you for people that kind of want to know like the behind the scenes of what goes on when you're creating something for like a TV or film? Um, so that process it can go between being like almost 100% technical work to being very creative. It, it really kind of depends on um, like your relationship with the composer yeah. and how behind schedule they are. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, so when things are going well, like generally speaking, the role of orchestrations when you're working on film music, um, the composer writes the music, usually on a computer, sometimes yes. just on the piano, although that's pretty rare these days. Um, and then once the music is approved by the director, so you have like the general, you know, direction of the scene, it's all working. At this point, all you have is a computer file. It's, you know, it's all synthesizers and sample orchestras and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So at that point, if you're going to be recording with a real orchestra, then you hire somebody like me as an orchestrator to take that music as a computer demo and then write out the actual sheet music of what the orchestra will play. Nice. So the challenges of that are sometimes music gets overridden at the computer um, for the number of players that you have in an orchestra. So the, ah. the goal is besides just, you know, translating the music, then you also have to sort of work out uh, the recording structure and sort of like the the record producer side of it where like if you have for instance like you might need to break down with the violins that you, you might need to have like an entire section recorded with just playing the melody and then another part where they're like you're just playing um, either counter melodies or rhythmic figures mm -hmm. it really depends on if you have like the budget for a large orchestra <laughs> essentially yeah you know when, if you only have so many players and you might have to decide okay we're going to break this down into different layers because to make us, you know, like to make a violin section sound good, you need like, you know, minimum seven to 10 players for it to sound like a string section. If you only have right. a smaller section, then you can't really 
make it sound like a big film orchestra. So yeah. you have to break it down where they play individual lines separately or that sort of stuff. So like on Queen's Gambit, um, we generally broke down, um, we would have like a separate pass of short strings for like the astronautic figures. And then okay. we do another pass um, doing all the melodic figures, um, which helped with our budget a little bit as well, because we had like, I believe it was about a hundred minutes of music uh, we recorded on that project. So there was a lot to get done. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the, the creative job is, is really like, I, I feel like knowing how to work in a recording studio is so important as an orchestrator is because you know how to write the music to be recorded, not necessarily be performed, if that makes sense. Right. You, you yeah. really have to think again, like, what is the purpose of what you're writing? Um, the purpose is for it to be recorded, which means you can get away with things that you couldn't get away with in a live setting. Like you can have knowing that you can stop at the end of the bar line and then get a clean start right after yeah. that and then edit mm -hmm. it all together to make it sound like it never stops. Like, you can do these things, whereas if it was going to be for live performance, right. you have to take a consideration what the players have to do. Um, so there's just there's lots of stuff where you really have to kind of know like what you can get away with. Yeah. Um, what, what can sound good. Um, mm -hmm. So really it's having like that, that knowledge of what works in the studio and what works in like a live setting and kind of combining all of that knowledge to get the best product. That's really, I think, uh, what helps in this career. Since COVID has happened, have you had to record live, like, you know, with orchestras and whatnot? Like, what is, what is that looking like right now for you and like the composers and... So it, there's there's multiple ways that it's happening right now. The, uh, the biggest problem right now is really for the players in Los Angeles, just because there's not a lot of possibility to record right now, you yeah. know, on the scoring stage with like 50 people in a room. Um, there was some of that that was still happening um, like late summer before things got bad again. Yeah. Um, but as of, you know, right now there's not much happening. Um, there's been some stuff where we record people at home and then it's all put together by the music editor. So there's been quite a bit of that that's been done in Los Angeles okay. to kind of keep people working. Um, and then a lot of it's been done either overseas and like we, so we did Queen's Gambit in Budapest. Um, oh, and then wow. qu quite a lot of stuff is done in London. Um, I did another project that was in um, Sydney, Australia. So there's, there's a lot of options to record orchestras across the world right now. And, you know, I, honestly, a lot of this was in place before COVID and now the technology is like really kind of streamlined, I think, kind of now that it's yeah. been like a requirement for this year. Yeah. Oh my gosh, definitely. That's that, that's good where COVID is not It's good well, I mean But yeah, I mean, but for the, people the in LA. Is that it's, it's it's bad in LA. It's, it's so bad in other LA parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little sad. There's been a lot of products that were that are supposed to record in Los Angeles that just haven't been possible. Ugh. Just the work has been shipped it's overseas, so you know. Oh my gosh. Definitely. Ugh. So you toured a little bit with um, the Brian Setzer Orchestra back in yeah. the day. Yeah. How did how did that come about? And like, what was that like for you? Um, that was a, a huge lucky break for me. That was literally my first gig when I moved to Los Angeles in really? uh, 2006. Oh, yeah. Cool. I uh, like I said at the beginning, I've been pretty fortunate with a couple of lucky breaks. I, I got an audition for that band like within a month of moving here. Okay. Um, so this nice. is one of these stories where um, I met somebody just through like gigs and stuff. It's like yeah. when I was when I was getting ready to leave Miami <clears throat> in 2006, I played um, a wedding gig in the Bahamas through, you know, I was, I was working with a, a company that does, you know, weddings and mm -hmm. casual gigs and that sort of stuff, um, private parties. And they had they had booked the band out of the company I for in Miami and also a company out of Los Angeles to put together bands. So the band was half LA, half Miami. Um, and then I had met some guys out here um, in, in LA at the time from that. So I met this guy, William Murillo, who was in the Brian Setzer band. And we were chatting it up. 
I was telling him, you know, I'm moving to Los Angeles in about a month, which, you know, I'm sure he thought nothing of because people say that right. sort of thing all the time, but oh, I actually yeah. was, <laughs> but I'd, I'd already booked the move again. You know, I was, anyway, so I moved out like a month later and I gave him a call when I got here. He said, oh, that's great. Uh, two guys actually just quit the band in the trombone section, like when I had called. <laughs> Oh so my said, gosh. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're interested, take an audition with the band. There's going to be, uh, I think they were playing like a private event in Las Vegas. But it was almost, I think it was Las Vegas. And this is like almost 15 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I went out there, drove out for the gig, played the gig, and uh, things went well. And then I, I ended up being with the band for like five or six years afterwards. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it provided some, you know, some financial security for when yeah. I first came out here, which is very helpful. So. It was, uh, it was a very, uh, a very lucky confluence of events. Do you have any fun tour stories? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, the, I think the most fun was probably the, we did one trip to Japan, um, which okay. I went to once, but like only for like very briefly. Um, so we were in, well, we stayed in Tokyo for a week and then we took the bullet train all over the country for like another week. So that oh, was awesome. really fun just getting to explore all over and then getting to spend like a solid week in, in Tokyo as well. So that was a lot of fun and you know everybody there was, was super nice they love like the japanese people love brian sesser so much <laughs> he's like cool. a, a god over there so yeah that was just a ton of fun i mean it's always a great group of people in that band and everyone was great the uh, all the crew was awesome it was just a lot of fun i've uh i've only been to tokyo so i haven't like done the bullet trains or anything yet so that's on my list down the road for when we can all start traveling again <laughs> i asked this to all my guests uh, why do you love music? Um, I mean, I think the short answer is it's like a sense memory almost, you know, where like you can, music is, it's connected to your past experiences. Okay. So for me, I think the, my example that I use for this, um, for wh whatever reason, like the one movie that like I watch with my daughter right now and like whenever I see it, I feel like I always cry. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's Frozen 2. There's a scene in there where like uh, the Elsa character finds out her mother has been conquered the entire time. And there's this moment where the orchestra swells and it's just this big powerful moment in both the plot of the movie and then also in the music, where it's just like the music just creates this overwhelming emotion. <laughs> and yeah. you just look at it like, is this, would this be possible without music? And I, I don't think so. And like, I always look for those moments where music brings out this like this intense emotion in the listener um and like i can't think of any better reason <laughs> to understand why i love music than that uh, th that's a good that's that's a great answer <laughs> that's so good what keeps you you know going working you know in music and composing and all that good stuff at this point i mean it feels like i don't know how to do anything else if i guess <laughs> yeah the short answer um but i mean for for me like working in like film music i mean the thing that i look forward to the most which is like, I feel like it's very lacking right now is going to the recording session and working with musicians and just the actual physical creation of music. Um, yeah. Which, you know, now we're doing over the computer, which is still sort of fun, but it's definitely not the same. Um, so I really, I miss that aspect of it. Um, I, I, I love, like I miss playing music with other musicians. <laughs> I miss yeah. conducting, I miss working with the musicians. You know, I, I miss the whole thing. Um, it's really important to me. Um, do you have any encouraging words or tips for people that like want to be doing what you're doing? I think the most important thing you can really do starting out is just, this may sound, uh, may not sound as nice as it should be, but like you really kind of have to be selfish, I think for the first couple of years, you know, you need to be selfish of your time 
and like kind of fully commit. And I, I'm guessing this, a lot of people probably kind of go through this when they're starting out in, you know, the entertainment industry, but like, you, it feels like you don't have a lot of time for anything else in your life, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I think it's rough on people that have relationships that are trying to get started in the industry where like, you really like, you only have one thing that you can do. Right. It's, it's yeah. hard on everything else. So th that's kind of my advice is you kind of have to give it your all when you're starting out and like, you know, if there's, if there's anything else you could be doing, you probably should be doing it, you know, but if, if there's nothing else you can do except for music or, or acting or whatever it is, then you have to go at, you have to go at it and you have to, you know, give it your all and really just commit to it fully, I think. Definitely. It's true. You have to have some dedication. It's, it's yeah. important. Do you have any uh, upcoming projects you're working on or that you can talk about or what's next? I do. So there's a couple, let's see, the stuff I can talk about. Um, I worked on the orchestrations for an animated movie called Connected that's coming out soon. Oh, cool. That was the, uh, I believe the same people that did the Lost Lego movie. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So there's that's a cool movie that's coming out soon. Um, then I've got some other cool stuff that I'm not at liberty to talk about that we're actually working on right now. I okay. Think what, there should be one coming out very soon, but uh, I can't really say anything. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but there's there's one thing that'll be um, streaming that should be probably a, I think a pretty big hit hopefully. And then I'm working on a video game for uh, for PlayStation Five as well. So there's some cool stuff. Um, thankfully, I still have some work right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, uh, that's yeah. great. Well, I, I, I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thanks well, so, thank much. You so much. Thanks again to the Bang Ups for the theme music and for Jeremy for being on the show. This has been the I Love Music podcast with Jen Fedor. <laughs>